Hi, my name is Teresa Sherwood and I'm the Director of Global Mission here at First Mansfield. It's my honor today to introduce my dear friend and partner in ministry, Reverend Gaston Warner. Gaston is the CEO of Zoe Ministry and he and I have served together on the Zoe Board of Directors for the past six years. During that time, First Mansfield has partnered with Zoe to sponsor over 3,000 children through the Empowerment Program. Gaston became CEO of Zoe in 2013, and since that time, the program has more than doubled in size and in capacity. What began in 2005 as a dream of feeding hungry children in Zimbabwe has grown into an empowerment program that has gained international recognition for its success in transforming the lives of children living in poverty. Zoe currently facilitates the empowerment of over 34,000 orphans and vulnerable children in seven countries and across three continents, including Africa, India, and Guatemala. Over 35,000 children have already graduated, and this year alone, another 10,000 children will graduate from the program into a life of success, leadership, and independence. In addition to leading this great organization through a tremendous season of growth, Gaston has been intentional and visionary in charting a path toward the future of expansion that will forever change the lives of many thousands of children living in poverty. Gaston brings a rich background to his position at Zoe. He's an elder in the Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church, and he's led congregations in multiple settings from Chicago to England. He earned a BA from Brown University, a Master's in Divinity from Duke Divinity School, and an MBA from the University of Durham in England. He's consulted with and served on a number of nonprofit boards and his staff for Habitat for Humanity, Duke Divinity School, and Duke University Chapel. All that experience has helped to make Gaston an able and trusted leader of the Zoe organization. But what sets him apart as a visionary for this ministry is his heart and his humility. Gaston never forgets that every child in every circumstance, no matter how dire, is a child of God, deserving of the same value and opportunity that we desire for our own children. Please join me in welcoming my friend, the director of Zoe Ministry, Reverend Gaston Warner. I, I kind of feel like now I should be afforded uh, the opportunity to make a video about Teresa and all the things that she's done. I can't express to you how much I've anticipated being able to speak to you all as a congregation. Uh, the story of Zoe and the story of First Methodist Mansfield have been intertwined since just about the very beginning of Zoe's ministry. And uh, this church has pushed that ministry forward at every inflection point along the way. So I look forward to talking to you a little bit about that and, and about Zoe and about what you're doing and the powerful ways that God is using you in the world. But first I want to ground that in Scripture. Because Scripture points us both to the source and to the ultimate purpose of all of our mission. And so I'm going to read to you scripture from uh, the letter to James of James, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is kind of a classic quote from James that's often used. And James's letter isn't long. As far as books of the Bible go, it's a pretty short one. It's only five chapters long. It's very succinct. It gets right to the point. He's writing to a group of people that are struggling. And the people in struggle, he's sending them encouragement and challenge and the possibility of God's control of the world. It's an incredibly powerful kind of way that he boils things down. And you can see how succinct he is in that one scripture. He points to the very heart of the law. Pure religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Jesus also boiled down scripture in these kinds of ways when he was asked uh, or actually quizzed by the Pharisees, tested uh, about what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And in between that, he said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. It's fascinating to me how closely Jesus links those two actions. Loving God and loving neighbor are not seen as separate actions, but all part of the same action in the kingdom of God. And that's what James is picking up on, that pure religion is to care for those who are most vulnerable and to keep oneself unstained by the world. When, when, when Jesus uh, is tested by the Pharisees in this way, he runs into a lot of conflict, kind of getting back to the heart of the law. You see, the Pharisees cared a great deal about God's law. And they weren't bad people. Pharisees kind of get a bad rap now. They, they weren't always bad uh, people. When, when, when they're talking to Jesus, it's not at their best. But these are people that dedicated their lives to helping others keep the law. And what they would do is set it out in a series of rules so that you knew exactly how to keep the law. The difficulty is that in so doing, they lost the point of the law in the first place. It's like Sabbath. You're to do no work on the Sabbath. That was part of the law. And so what they did is they defined out exactly what that meant by giving a series of rules. And you got down to the point where you're not supposed to carry any more than the weight of two dried figs on the Sabbath. Otherwise, it's considered doing work. You go to Israel today on the Sabbath, in your hotel room, your elevator will stop at every floor so you don't have to do the work of pushing the button. The lights will come on automatically so you don't have to do the work of flipping the switch. So it's not that the Pharisees were bad people, it's that they, they, they boiled God's law, which was meant for our uplifting and benefit, into a series of rules that became a burden. And what Jesus does is he pulls us back into the heart of the law. And what James is doing in this scripture is bringing us back into the very heart of the law. To keep oneself unstained by the world and care for the vulnerable. Now it's it's that piece that I want to talk to you about what First Methodist Mansfield is doing. Now, I don't know how well you guys are keeping yourself unstained by the world. I don't know how you're doing on that bit. Hopefully, you're giving it a solid effort, though. But I can talk to you about what you're doing to care for the world's most vulnerable children. 
And that's a series of how this church has interacted with Zoe over time. Usually when I talk to a church, you know, we have a scripture, we talk about the Zoe model. Um, but with you all, I want to tell you how you've partnered with this ministry over time. You may be well aware of it, but there may be some things you're unaware of. Zoe was launched in 2004 as a Christian response to the AIDS pandemic and specifically the millions of orphans left in the wake of that pandemic. And so it started out of the North Carolina conference. You guys somehow found about it because you did research and, and said, oh, this sounds like a good ministry in Africa. So Zoe launched in 2004 as a relief ministry. And in 2005, Mansfield started partnering with it. And you all kind of helped push that ministry forward when it was in its very kind of baby stages of going forward. And then in 2006, in part because of the support that you all as a church gave to it, Zoe had some extra funds to invest. And so it put out word that it was looking for something working with orphans and vulnerable children that was having a deep impact and that was carrying the gospel of Christ uh, to, to, to those in greatest need. And we were introduced to this Rwandan social worker named Epiphany Mujoamana, who's spoken here. Many of you have probably heard her. Um, and she had a very different and frankly kind of weird model for reaching out to orphans and vulnerable children. It, it, was, it was completely bizarre to us. She had roughly one staff member per thousand children, which sounded weird. There were no orphanages. They didn't give out food to the children. It was completely different from what we were doing with our relief work. But we started funding her model because when she explained it, it made sense. And so we started funding her model. And then I remember in 2007, when the board had done this for a year, doing our relief work on this side, working with a, through Epiphany on her empowerment project on this side, and at the end of 2007, we evaluated it. And what Epiphany was doing was transforming children in a sustainable way out of that life of extreme poverty. And what we were doing in some cases with our relief work was keeping children alive in that situation. And so we thought, well, her stuff's better than our stuff. So we pulled out over the next three years out of relief and we came in behind Epiphany's empowerment model. That was a difficult transition for Zoe. And a lot of churches found that very painful because they were worried we were leaving these orphans orphaned uh, and, and doing this kind of crazy new thing. But you all understood the strategic power of it immediately that these children had God-given abilities and skills and that there's things that they could do and if they had a little bit of support, they could pull themselves and each other out of this kind of poverty. And so you all started supporting that ministry right from the get-go and helped us really launch it. And then you all started to partner with a thousand orphans at a time which no church had done. We we're only just now getting a, a handful of churches and individuals who are partnering at that level. You all partnered with a over a thousand children per kind of three year cycle. And you did it not once, not twice, but three times. So that this church has partnered with over 3000 orphans and vulnerable children. Actually with some other groups that you all have partnered, you're probably closer to 3,500. Children whose lives will be permanently changed because of the work that you've done. And we've used what you've done to shame other churches around the country. <laughs> but, and, and, and when we talk about 
those pieces, it sounds simple to kind of list them out. But each one of those areas that I mentioned was an inflection point for Zoe as a ministry. Uh, ministries like this are very fragile beings. And at every point where God was calling Zoe to take the next step along God's path, it was you all who stood behind the ministry and helped it take that step. So what Zoe is today is in large part your fault because of the faithfulness that you displayed in kind of stepping forward with it. Now, I've never felt God's hand on a ministry as strongly as I do with Zoe. Uh, I, I've worked with some great Christian missions, but God continually pushes this ministry forward in ways that just astound me. And I feel like there is energy building for the next place that God wants us to go. And I'm so excited about journeying to that place with you all. At the end of this year, I'm hoping that we'll have, by, by the end of 2017, we should have 35,000 children enrolled currently in this three-year program across seven countries, which, which is fantastic. But we keep reminding ourselves that the World Bank and UNICEF did a, a, a kind of a co-study together and there's over 385 million children living in extreme poverty. That's less than $1.50 a day. And about 100 million of those are orphans in the countries where Zoe is currently working. And so while we're amazed with what God has done with the support of Mansfield particularly and other churches as well, we feel God pushing us to the next stages. And, and so that kind of there's a power in that. But it's all well and good to talk about organizational development and numbers. I wanna tell you the story of one of the children in the program. But before doing that, I've been assuming that because you all have been with us for about 12 years now, that, that you all, all know the model, and that's probably not, not a great assumption. Most of you do. Let me give a quick, in case you're a visitor or new, or you've been living under a rock for the last 12 years, let, let, me, let me tell you about how the model actually works. So when Epiphany, who is a Rwandan social worker, and her team of other social workers in Rwanda, um, they were frustrated by this, what they perceived as a cycle of relief work with these orphans they were working with and then dependency on that relief work. And so what they wanted to do is break that cycle. So they got together and designed this radically different way of engaging the children. So as I mentioned, with no orphanages and very small staff, what they do is they go into the villages where these children are already living. They talk to the leaders, the village chief, the pastors, everyone who's working in kind of formal and informal leadership structures. They get their buy-in and then they have them help them invite the orphans to the program. So right from the get-go, and it's an all indigenous staff as well, so right from the get-go it feels like a local program anywhere we are, and, and really it is a local program. And then they invite the children and they talk to them about empowerment and hope and the possibility that life could be better because having hope that tomorrow could be better is a difficulty for these children. Everything bad you've heard about happening to children in the world happens to these children. But the staff talks to them, they have them share their own stories, they hear testimonies from other children, and the ones who are interested are gathered into what we call working groups of 60 to 100 children each. This church is currently partnering with 16 of those working groups of children uh, across uh, Rwanda, India, and Guatemala. 
So we have this working group of 60 to 100 total children. And over the next three years, what Zoe does is it stands behind those children as they work to help pull themselves and each other out of poverty in a sustainable way. And Epiphany and her team found that there were about seven or eight things that held these children in poverty. And any one of those seven or eight areas on its own had the power to pull them back into poverty. And so what they said is in order to really break free of this cycle, they have to have all of those addressed in a roughly simultaneous way. And then it's incredible what the children begin to do with it. So instead of giving them food in rural areas, Zoe helps them to learn how to grow their own crops and have access to fertilizer and seeds and tools to do that. Uh, in more urban areas and also in the rural areas, they start businesses co concurrently with that. So they're able to buy food. And at the end of that, they're able to be food secure. Zoe does that with housing and with education and with health and hygiene and with child rights and the business education, vocational training if formal education is no longer an option for them, a sense of community and support, all while living in their own village and knowing they're not beyond the love of God in Christ. And it's incredible what these children with very small inputs begin to do with what God has given them through folks like you. It's like watching a miracle unfold. And a graduate, this is what we want to see with a graduate. Then I'll get to a story. Um, a graduate would look like this. The family would be food secure, which means that they have food for today and they're pretty sure they're going to have food for tomorrow as well so they can begin to focus on other things. They have safe, secure housing that they either own or rent. They, have, uh, they understand about hygiene so they're not getting sick all the time and they have access to healthcare structures for when they do get sick. They're able, the younger children are able to go back to formal education and the older children have the option of vocational training. They understand what their rights are and how to enforce them. And they have this extended family around them, this working group of people that they lean on for social support and economic support and spiritual support. Often they're leaders in their churches and leaders in their community. And by the third year in the program, a great many of them are employing other, usually orphans or widows to work in their businesses to help both their employees, but also to expand their businesses. And that happens with about an 85% rate of success. It's unlike anything I'd ever seen. It's why I started working for Zoe. It's just incredible. So let me tell you about Claudine. Claudine is uh, an orphan in Rwanda. And I remember when I first met her, we had a group of Americans and we were all kind of shuffled into her, her, her hut that she was renting with a, with a mud floor. She was in her third year of the program then. And the person who stood before us was this confident, beautiful young woman who had uh, every confidence that you would hope to see from a woman of her age. And she told us the story of how she had come to join Zoe. But before she did that, she handed us each scripture verses that she had written out on a piece of paper. And each of them had a promise of scripture for us. And, and then she gave us a little sermon that was one of the best sermons I think I've ever heard, encouraging us to trust in God. And then she told us this story. She said that first her father passed away and then her mother passed away some months later. 
Both of them died probably from HIV AIDS related illnesses, although she would never say that because of the stigma of the disease. And she said during uh, the, the, the time that her mother was ill, the mud hut in which her family lived in, her and two other, and, and, and her sisters and, and her, her, her mother, during that time, the mud hut they lived in collapsed because it's made of the stucco stuff. And if you don't keep repairing it, it finally washes away. So at the age of five years old, Claudine was left orphaned and homeless. And she had a three-year-old sister to care for and a six-month-old baby to care for. Now that goes beyond my imagination. I have a five-year-old and it's all my spouse and I can do to keep that little thing alive. <laughs> and to think of her raising a three-year-old and a six-month-old baby is, it really does strain my comprehension. And one of the people in our group said, Claudine, how did you survive? And she said, it was very difficult. We would sleep by the side of the road, usually covered in banana leaves. And I would get up every morning and I would strap the baby onto my back and I would leave my middle sister where we had left, where we had slept the night before. And I would go into town and I would beg for food. For 10 years, she lived like that. She said, I started off begging for food, and as I grew older and stronger, I began to beg for work. And then I would work from sunup to sundown, doing whatever people had for me, usually shoveling out animal sheds or carrying water or, or tilling fields. And at the end of the day, sometimes I would get food for my work, and I would take that back to it. And some days we had food, and some days we slept hungry. Sleeping hungry is something the children talk about. That's a shared experience between them that they've all, they all know what it means to sleep hungry. And she said things were up and down. There was a time several years into that when they thought they wouldn't make it, that an elderly woman who was losing her eyesight needed help in her house, so she invited the girls to stay with her. She couldn't give them food, but she could give them shelter, and they would, in exchange, they would do housework. And things got a little better for a while, and then the, the, the woman passed away, and her children sold the home and Claudine said, at that point, I thought we would all die. And my, my middle sister was now seven years old. So I sent her off to the next largest village so that she could get work as a house girl doing house help, which brings its own dangers. Um, but she sent, them, sent her away thinking, why should we all die? Maybe she can make it. And then she stayed with her middle sister. And then something, she said, someone did a great kindness to us. And the great kindness was that there was a family that had a large animal shed. And they allowed Claudine and her sister to live in the animal shed, kind of to function as night watchmen for the animals. Um, and at least they had some shelter over their, over their head. And right about the time that Claudine was about 15 years old and she was tired of living with the cows, she heard about this orphan program. The village chief invited her to come to this program because he knew her situation. And she said that she was real excited about the first meeting, but then she was disappointed. And, and one of the persons in our group said, oh, but wasn't it a wonderful day, your first day with Zoe? And she said, no, it was a terrible day. And we said, why? She said, I was, I was working for food every day. And so when I heard there was an orphan program, I got my sack, thinking that they would give out food because that's what they do. And I came to the meeting and they explained that they weren't a relief program, that they didn't give out food. And she said, I was very disappointed. But then I heard them talk about hope, about God's love for me. 
And I heard other children that were further along in the program telling us their testimony. And she said, and then they had us tell our story. And she said, I thought I was alone, but I heard my story come from the lips of other children. And I knew that in this group, I wasn't alone. And so even though they hadn't given her food, Claudine decided to take the significant risk of trying to see if the program could help her. And so she started the training, she started in with the group, and she took to everything immediately. Uh, she started, one of her first businesses was selling used clothing with two other girls from her group. And then she started another business in addition to that of making a sorghum drink. It's you get sorghum and you put it in a hollowed out log and with water and you stir it for about two weeks. And it becomes this drink that I don't really care for, but it seems to sell well in the markets. It's kind of a high energy drink. If you stir it for four weeks, it becomes slightly alcoholic, um, which, which means it sells better, but we discourage that among the children. So two weeks, she, she, she sells her sorghum drink. But she had even higher sights. She wanted to kind of pull her family higher up. And so she started uh, working as a seamstress. She, she went to six months of vocational training that Zoe helped her with and then got a startup kit at the end of that. She was fantastic at the work and, and, and she, did, uh, she worked diligently all day. And things were going well for her. Her family was up to, to two meals a day. Zoe helped her find her middle sister and reintegrate her back into the family. She was helping other people in her group that were struggling with her, their businesses more than she was so that she was kind of assisting others, helping pull them up as well. She was speaking in churches about the power of God to redeem even a life as desperate as hers. And things just seemed to be on an upward trajectory for Claudine and her family. But several months later, her group began to notice that she seemed to be regressing. Claudine was tired again, and she seemed to be uh, hungry as well. And, and they were worried about her, so they alerted the Zoe program facilitator, and the Zoe staff went and did a home visit. And immediately she saw the problem. Claudine had adopted six additional orphans. And the the Zoe staff said, Claudine, what have you done? This is too much for you. You were just starting to get your own life back on track. And Claudine said, I know. I didn't mean to. It was an accident. <laughs> she said, I saw these children and they were wandering the streets and their mother had passed away four months before. And I remembered what it was like to be in their shoes. And I thought to myself, how can I speak in churches about God's power to redeem my life and turn my back on these children? And so I invited them into my home just to give them a meal, just to tell them that I loved them. And after we had eaten and we had talked, they wouldn't leave. And so I asked them if they wanted to live with me, and they said they did. And so Claudine would spend her nights tending to sick children because they had been living on the streets. And so they had all kinds of, uh, you know, bug bites and, and various maladies that they were dealing with. So she would tend sick children at night. And then during the day, she would do her jobs and sleep in between jobs. And they were back down to about one meal a day and a pretty scant meal. And she said, life was a struggle then, but we were happy. And so the Zoe staff told her group what she had done because she hadn't shared it with anyone yet. And 
So what her group decided to do is move her up on the housing list. See, what Zoe does is it gives the group uh, a, a housing grant one at a time. The group meets together and decide who needs housing the most, and then the group helps build the house for that family. And then once they finish that, they get another grant, and they, and they, and they go on uh, down the list. And so they moved her up the list. And I went back about four months later to Rwanda. And they had built a new extended home for Claudine and her many brothers and sisters now. And so they had space and the maladies that the adopted children had been displaying were clearing up and they were beginning to do some businesses of their own. And the family was back eating regularly and back on that upward trajectory. What I like about that story, and it's not an unusual one, it's unusual that the children adopt six orphans, but adopting one or two is not unusual at all. As soon as their lives begin to stabilize, we see that they adopt other children. The group adopts other orphan families into their group and shares out their resources more thinly. They begin to pay forward what God has given them in ways that are incredible and help build up their own dignity. But Claudine, what she did is not only was her life redeemed by God reaching out to her through people like you and through Zoe, but she was then empowered so she could also be a disciple of God, helping orphans and widows herself and remaining unstained by the world. The leaven in the loaf of the kingdom of God is when we can reach out in missions in a way that those who are reached become those who then reach out to others. This is how God evangelizes you and I. He doesn't just save us, but calls us to become disciples and sends us forth to do God's work in God's world. And our mission should reflect the image of God, that we don't just help people, but we empower them to become those who then in turn help others. And in so doing, the kingdom of God is realized on earth as it is in heaven. This is the kind of mission that you all have been involved with for the last 12 years. Many of you have traveled over. I encourage others of you to travel over. We almost never lose someone. The trips are very safe. And what you spend your time doing is hearing the stories of God's redeeming power in the lives of these orphans and telling them you're proud of them. It's work, but it's the best work you'll ever engage in. I invite you to come over and see what you're doing. I invite you to continue journeying with Zoe because we don't know where God's taking us, but we're excited about the possibilities. And we are so grateful to you. So on behalf of about 3,500 children who would not have come into the program without you, and on behalf of another probably 32, 33,000 that have indirectly benefited from your faithfulness. I want to share their thanks to you because they can't do it in person. And invite you to continue on with the journey with Zoe, these incredible children, and all the disciples here at First Mansfield. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. And will you pray with me? Let us pray. Oh God of all times and all places, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done. We are amazed at the unfolding of your kingdom in our presence. 
in the midst of desperate poverty that your light still shines. God, I thank you for this church, for First Methodist Mansfield. I thank you for touching their heart 12 years ago to walk with these children. I thank you for their faithfulness and pray your blessings upon them. I thank you for the children in Zoe's program who have shown such stunning courage to try to pull themselves out of their situation and even to lift their eyes to help others. I pray for the hundreds of millions of other children who need not just charity, but a way to sustainably change their lives, to know that you love them and they're not beyond your love. And we know, God, that orphans and widows and those who are vulnerable are under your special protection. And so we pray, Lord, that you will raise up more workers to tend the needs of your people and in so doing, understand the great blessings of being your disciples. We pray all this and so much more that we hold in our heart. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.